we're not worthy to be with this guy on this show. Uh, our job is to put you out of business. Jump on board here, Clyde, because we need your insurance money. Was the actual word lethargic? Yeah. Oh yeah. In our business, that means spinal tap. Keep it simple, stupid. Okay, guys, welcome to the July issue of Risk Management Monthly. We are really honored to have um, a special guest with us this month. I've got Greg Henry on the line at uh, in in Ann Arbor, and Michael Kessler on the line in Chicago. Michael is a plaintiff's attorney uh, based out of um, Albany, who's doing, I guess, some business and pleasure in Chicago right now. But I do, um, Michael, very, very, very much appreciate your willingness to take the time with us because, you know, as we had talked about a while ago, uh, our job is to put you out of business. And um, and, and you said... Uh, and I hope you do. <laughs> um, Michael is a board certified in medical malpractice, which is, um, uh, is that something new, uh, Michael, getting uh, certification? It, yes, it's relatively new. Um, it's, I think if I have the name correctly, it's the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys. And uh, there's only 150 of us roughly in the United States, um, not because I'm so wonderful, but I think it's because it's a, a relatively new thing. Unlike the medical profession, unfortunately, I believe, um, attorneys do not have normally a board certification process, which uh, um, you know enables us to uh, recognize those people who have taken extra training and have extra experience in these things in, in matters like this, which is an unfortunate aspect of our profession, which I, I believe we should you know come closer to the uh, medical model. But it is a relatively uh, new phenomenon, and there are very few. Um, people who have done it, and also there are very few board certifications. Well, you also by the way, what, what does that mean, by the way? Is there a test you go somewhere and take? Yes, does somebody yes. look at the fact you've done 150 cases, or well, how do they decide you qualify, Mike? It, it's actually both. Um, you have to have had a certain number of uh, trials, uh, various other uh, criteria, uh, trials, certain number of uh, recoveries, a certain number of experience, either for plaintiffs or defendants. Um, it's The board certification is, does not uh, distinguish between plaintiffs' attorneys or defendants' attorneys, uh, but it does require certain qualifications, recommendations from not only adversaries but uh, uh, judges, and then there is a uh, written examination, which actually I was, uh, <laughs> was uh, in, in many ways harder than I would have expected, uh, but I guess it really did weed out people who have not had a fair amount of experience about this over the years because there were some some pretty highly specific questions. By coincidence, over the years, I happen to have had cases uh, that were involved in those areas. Hello. Well, I'm, Mike, I'm glad you brought that question up because uh, is it reasonable now? You're going to help out doctors at this moment. Uh, is it reasonable for a doctor to say to his insurance company when they sent him a letter and said, you know, you've been sued. This is who we've assigned the case to. Do you ask a question like, are you board certified in malpractice? Is that because there's so few of you around that that, you know, does it mean that the guy who's going to take care of you isn't good? Uh, no, I don't think it does. And in fact, certainly in New York, we um, 
we're not allowed to even advert, not advertise, but even claim this board certification without a disclaimer that you know would be longer than any kind of consent form that you've ever seen in your business. And I think that's a throwback in our business and our profession um, to the fact that lawyers are very sensitive to the fact that they think they ought to be able to do everything. And I suspect you know, probably 50 or 60 years ago, that was probably true in the medical profession as well. So, no, I don't think from a defense point of view that that's the case because I, although I don't know this to be the fact, my sense of the situation of the people who are board certified in medical malpractice are mostly plaintiff's attorneys, although they're not required to be. Um, there are a few, but I think generally speaking, the insurance carriers know who is good and uh, generally uh, assign people who are experienced in the field of medical malpractice. Certainly the people I run up against, I see the same cast of characters um, uh, regularly, and there are relatively few. And people who are hired by insurance companies, um, they've generally done a lot of this type of work, so I wouldn't be too concerned about that. I would be concerned, as, you know, I don't know if this is the appropriate time to raise it, but Many, many times, if I were a defendant in a case, I would be very concerned that where there are multiple defendants, insurance companies do try to save money and um, assign one lawyer to multiple defendants and then try to sort it out later on, which to me, if I was a defendant, I would be very concerned about that, that there's a conflict of interest and people are entitled to their own counsel and under every policy I've ever seen, certainly in New York, and I do some work around the rest of the country, you know, they're entitled. A, a, a physician or any defendant is entitled to have someone exclusively protecting their interest and not trying to save money by representing potentially multiple interests. I've had a situation years ago, I remember, where I typically, and this may be totally off the topic, uh, but um, I would prefer not to sue individual physicians or nurses if I can avoid it um, strategically and uh, as a practical matter as well. So, for example, I would sue a hospital. I remember a case where I sued a hospital where the emergency physicians were independent contractors. Under New York law, the hospital would still be responsible for their acts. Under a, under a respondeat sort of theory. Yes. That, that, In yes. New York, we would call that a Maduba. There's a case, Maduba, against, I think, Benedictine Hospital, uh, where they're an implied agent, whether or not they're a contractor or actually an employee. Um, so, uh, and I know in this particular case, because the hospital carried limited insurance coverage, they were begging me to sue the individual physicians. I didn't want to. And ultimately, when we came close to trial, um, the hospital itself turned around and sued their own emergency medicine physicians um, to bring well, in additional coverage. Let, let's make sure that our, that our listeners are not near as sophisticated as you are, Mike. What they did was they third-partied. Uh, the docs in. It's That's not that correct. They, ma- they didn't make some statement saying, well, our docs screwed up and they're horrible. They just said, jump on board here, Clyde, because we need your insurance money. Right. But strategically, it became important to me. And the reason I didn't want to sue them is because it made I like the being in the position where the hospital was saying, well, if anybody screwed up here, it was the physicians and not the hospital. I think it was both in that particular case. But, um, you know, I liked being to me, that was being in the catbird seat of having the hospital making these allegations uh, against their own physicians. I mean, and, well, and they're well warranted in that particular case. You've made, a, you've made an interesting point because uh, I saw two brilliant lawyers try and explain to the jury what a third-party action was, why the hospital was suing its doctors. Uh, one was tremendously successful, 
And the other one, you saw the jury kind of looking at each other saying, well, if the hospital's suing them too, they must have done something wrong. Correct. And I, I liked being in that position. The other thing with regards to your credentials, uh, Michael, you're vice president for the New York Academy of Trial Lawyers, which I think is pretty cool, selected for Best Lawyers of America and selected for New York Super Lawyers. So We're not not worthy to be with this guy on this show. Well, that and two dollars dollars a year, we'll get you on the subway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and four bucks, we'll buy you coffee at Starbucks, right? Yeah. Well, Mike... Would you give us a little background of why, uh, what uh, got you into this uh, aspect of law? Well, I, in reality, I just basically stumbled into it. Um, I uh, had been practicing law for about mm, almost 20 years, and a lawyer that I knew um, referred me a couple of very large malpractice cases. I had no idea what I was doing. Matter of fact, one of the cases was uh, one that they were trying to throw out of their office because they didn't have a clue about what it was about. And I didn't have any idea what I was doing either. And at that time, I uh, happened to uh, come across, uh, it it was involving um, uh, a a woman who uh, was a patient in a psychiatric hospital and uh, uh, the law office that referred this case to me, had con- they didn't have any idea what it was about. It turned out that she was, uh, they thought she was completely nuts. In fact, she had diabetes mellitus and diabetes insipidus. And um, her metabolic status was completely out of whack, all of which they were attributing to her mental status. But in any event, I happened to become hooked up with one of the top endocrinologists in the world, Later, he later became president of the American Diabetes Association, and I sent him the records, and he got back to me and said, well, this is open and shut, and he made what was otherwise a very complicated case into something very simple. I didn't know any better. I just happened to uh, uh, start asking the right questions, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, um, meticulous about things like that. You're, you're talking to somebody, by the way, who could not focus his microscope in high school, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but what I have been able to do over the years, and I've learned, is that um, what I if I have a skill at anything, it's being relentless, and secondly, more importantly, as relates to your question, it's being able to turn what appear to be complex things into simple to simplify them. And in that regard, I learned a long time ago when I first got into this business that um, by quite by accident at first that. Um, getting the best experts you can find. The best are usually also the best teachers, and they were gracious enough to me over the years to take the time to explain things to me in in uh, uh, terms that I could even understand. And if I can understand them, then hopefully I can explain them to someone else. So th- that's really how I happened to stumble into doing it. As a matter of fact, my uh, I, I mean, I can't tell you what a gram stain would look like, but I could tell you what the significance of having a positive or a negative gram stain would be in evaluating a patient that you're considering or concerned may have meningitis. So, you know, although I understand that there is a huge amount of complexity growing every day within the medical profession, and particularly for emergency medicine specialists, um, having, uh, you know, having extreme time constraints and, you know, time pressures and patient pressures, but there are certain concepts that are, you know, fundamental and, um, and, and, and are foundations for everything. And 
you know, those are comparatively simple concepts. So I've been able to do that. And matter of fact, one of the things that I do, um, I try to look for a witness who may not even talk about the uh, the quality of the care. But usually I try to find out my first witness in these cases would be somebody who would just come on as a teacher to teach uh, the court and the jury what the terms mean, what the medicine is, and really not be second-guessing or evaluating the care that's provided, but really to give everybody a foundation so that when they do hear what was done or what wasn't done, uh, people understand that. So that was a long-winded way of uh, telling you how I got into this thing, but um, I think it really how I got into this line of work, but I've been doing it for about the last 20 years now, almost exclusively. You made a couple of comments, Mike, which are absolutely important for our listeners to pay attention to, and one of those is keep it simple, stupid. Uh, whenever you start using medical ease, and, you know, I've appeared a lot, I've given over 700 depositions, been live to the stand 410 times, and whenever you start falling into medical ease, people's, uh, the jury's mind starts wandering off. It has to be in a way that they understand it, and and Rick and I, and and now to some extent you, understand what these terms mean and we just gloss over them and we forget that most people don't know what a hemoglobin is and they have they have no concept and you have to make it as simple as possible uh, because if if you don't uh, you've lost uh, your reason for being on the stand and and if I could follow up on that it's um, it's I find, and I think this is probably true more with defense attorneys because they're, and I admire them because they're going from one case to another. And the advantage that I have as a plaintiff, frankly, is I get to pick and choose my cases, and I get to choose which ones are uh, are meritorious and which ones aren't. And my rule of thumb, and maybe I can come back to this, but um, is you know I'm ruling out like 98, 99 percent of the potential cases that go come through my door. I have the luxury of being that selective, and I'm not saying there aren't a lot of junky, uh, unmeritorious cases out there, but um, I think there's a tendency of lawyers in general um, to try to tell people how much medical knowledge they have and how to and use a lot of fancy terms, both as lawyers and I think it's more defense attorneys, but plaintiff's attorneys as well. And I've never fallen into that trap, maybe because I'm too stupid, but, you know, um, I think you want to try to simplify, instead of using hemoglobin, for example, you want to know how much uh, oxygen's in the blood. You don't, you know, instead of using very technical terms, I think you always want to simplify it and uh, not bury the lead, as a journalist would say. You know, one of the things I... I um I neglected to do at the beginning of our interview, and I um, is to introduce how we landed upon you. In that, uh, Greg was in Israel not too long ago giving some uh, talks over there, and the fellow who invited him over there was Joseph Liebman, who um, also knew Sandy Rosenblum, who is uh, your partner, and um, he's the one who referred you to us and so the route's been rather circuitous but uh, we are super appreciative of your willingness to take the time with us you know it's my pleasure you know because i think really we have a common goal i would be very happy to be put out of business i would be very happy if i never had another client and i'm sure that you and everyone potentially listening to this would be very happy if there were 
you know, never any any mistakes made and that there were never any malpractice cases. I'd well, be very happy to find a, another line of work. It's a paradox because uh, I don't wish anyone to be ill, but when I'm working in the department, if there is somebody shot, stabbed, run over by a, a truck, an acute heart attack, I want to see it because it's what I'm trained to do. And again, you're right. If everybody in the country uh, didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't drive at 100 miles per hour, we'd all be better off. But I'll tell you, as an emergency doc, there is a sense of the thrill of what we do for a living. And I think you can understand that, Mike, that oh, absolutely. train to respond, I want to respond. I, I, you know, the last thing I want is a job. Uh, they said, Greg, you can have the same money you're doing industrial histories and physicals now five days a week. I think I'd shoot myself. All good ER docs are ADD or ADHD, and uh, we like we like uh, blood and we like uh, thrills. And right. there's no question about it. Well, my point is that none of us want to see. Uh, there's always going to be emergencies, and there's always going to be need for emergency medicine. But I think where we all would agree is that nobody wants to see somebody make a mistake because. You know, I know this is one of the questions that you would uh, pose to me uh, earlier, but, um, you know, most of the mistakes that I see are really pretty simple. They're not, this is not complicated. The, the mistakes I see are not complicated. As a matter of fact, my threshold for taking a case is that if I go to an expert in any field and they don't say to me, wait a second, nobody could possibly have done that then I'm not interested in the case because these are too hard and too expensive to pursue to take cases that um, aren't that clear. Um, you know, that's a largely a business decision, but, you know, that's really the threshold standard that I use. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people around, many people for that matter, who are taking a lot of junky cases that shouldn't be brought and are burdening the system and, it, and it's bad for everyone. But the ones that are the real good cases, I mean, when I say good case, um, the ones that are the meritorious cases are really boiled down to pretty simple things. And I would bet you, you don't have to answer this, but I would bet you that you guys have seen a lot more malpractice than I'll ever see in my life. And most of the time, it probably doesn't make much difference. Uh, but on occasion, I'm sure it happens all the time, and most of them are. The, the literature is, re, is uh, replete with things showing that uh, studies showing that um, you know malpractice is, if anything, way underreported, as opposed to over uh, you know over overreported. It, it depends on how you define malpractice, Mike, because if it if a malpractice is a deviation from the standard of care, uh, it happens every day. I mean, when you're right, uh, with that definition, I've seen more of it just by reviewing my own charts, and, I, and I'm pretty well aware of that. But the other half of that is, is it proximately related to a absolutely. harm? And you're that, absolutely correct. That, that is a different question, and uh, fortunately, we get away, we, we get away with, uh, with a lot of stuff. <laughs> there's no question about oh, there's that. There's no question, and, and, that, and that's usually, you're right, that, that the... the in most cases, I would say 90% of the cases I'm dealing with, the harder, the much harder issue is to demonstrate that um, the uh, deviation from accepted standards of care uh, caused harm. 
And that's usually the bigger challenge than uh, proving that somebody did something wrong. That's usually the easy part. Mike, I want to get back to a point that, that you made earlier, and I want our listeners to, to relate to this. Uh, there's at least two good papers in the literature that say if you sue a doctor by himself, um, he wins uh, in court maybe 60, 70 percent of the time. Um, and those are those that go to trial. Uh, if you sue a doctor in a hospital, it comes down a little bit. Uh, and the winning comes down. And if you, if you can actually just try the institution, as you pointed out, if it's just a hospital, then, you, then the jury doesn't get to look at the face of somebody who's sympathetic. And it's easier to take money from a hospital than it is an individual doctor. Well, I think uh, that's true intuitively. I'm not familiar with those studies, although I'm now going to have to go look for them, I guess. But, yep. um, but I think the, uh, you know, but you did raise another point there, and that is that these percentages of, uh, of uh, wins and losses, I think I've never been intimidated by that, and I think they're very, very misleading. And the reason for that is regardless of which of those th- three scenarios you um, – you, you utilize, uh, that eliminates the number of cases that are settled. And the meritorious cases, the defendants have the opportunity to settle those cases. So the fact that they're winning something like 80% of the cases, defendants are winning something like 80 to 85% of cases that uh, go to trial is extraordinarily misleading because it's a, a self-selected sample because the defendants and their insurance companies largely are settling those cases well uh, i couldn't agree more so that's why i I think those statistics are very much misused in the debate about so-called malpractice reform that defendants are are sued uh, way too many times because look at what percentage they're winning if you took out if you also included in those the cases that are settled favorably to a plaintiff the numbers would be quite different looking no, I can't. I can't agree with you more. And uh, it would be the idiot insurance company, which, in the face of obvious malpractice, didn't structure something. I, my phrase to the residents when I teach them is, uh, "Real malpractice gets settled. Obvious malpractice gets settled. It's rare <laughs> that I go to court on a case." Um, where it's it's always questionable, and that's where the real skill of the attorney comes in. Because if it's a slam dunk case, if it's the kind of stuff I could get the money for if I presented it, you know what? Uh, those do get settled. I, I, I don't think that we, we try a lot of gross malpractice in front of juries. No, and that's my experience. And frankly, as I said earlier, there, I think the way that you get like crazy results one way or the other – big or small or an injustice one way or the other is somebody has seriously miscalculated what the risks are. Mike, one of the things that we do um, routinely is to look at closed claims to see if we can find any kind of recurring themes and to alert our listeners to the um, variety of things that are resulting in them getting screwed up. Um, do you have have you noticed any kind of re- recurring themes in your cases that basically uh, uh, could help help our docs? Yes, I think there there are, and I think um, there, I think 
generally fall into a, a couple of different categories. One, if I had to pick one of anything, it's a failure to use the diagnostic process and the failure to come up with an appropriate differential diagnosis. And I think that to some degree, obviously, certainly in emergency medicine, by, in, by definition, you're dealing in, in, uh, with time constraints, although some things you know, obviously you have an opportunity to do more thinking about it and less reacting. Um, but, you know, failing to come to an appropriate differential diagnosis, you know, people don't go to an emergency room. I know people, some use, some people use an emergency room or emergency department as their primary care physician, but I'm excluding them for a minute. But generally people go to a doctor for any reason because, not because they think they have a cold, but because like if a parent takes a child to the hospital, they're concerned they have something more than a cold. And the secret is to be able to have an appropriate differential diagnosis, um, as you gentlemen know better than I, and to work it through and to rule out or confirm those things which are life-threatening and treatable first. And I think there's a tendency sometimes that I see for people to jump to conclusions that I've seen this a hundred times before, and maybe it's only one or two percent of the cases which is going to be, which are going to be, uh, you know, something a more serious condition, and say, you know, it's just my feel that it's not that without working through an appropriate differential diagnosis. I think that to some degree that stems from obviously there a tremendous amount of self confidence is required to do what you gentlemen do and your colleagues do, but. You know, sometimes that borders on the arrogance and failing to go through the steps that are necessary to think through a, di- a diagnosis. And the other, I think, common theme, without getting too specific about kinds of uh, of particular conditions that you know you would know better than I, or as well as I, anyways, as to what the major source of problems are, would be a failure to communicate information um, that is known. You know, thought, failure to follow up on like an X-ray um, or or a lab test, and um, I mean, I've had a few, a number of cases over the years. I've had a number of cases of, of missing, you know, cases that are meningitis, particularly in children. Um, and you know, if you go back and look at those records, there are tests that are ordered that aren't done because nobody gave an order, no, or tests that are requested but nobody ever actually wrote an order for it. People, you know, just do silly things. Uh, from a lack of communication. And the th- I guess the third thing would be, um, in general, malpractice cases, not necessarily limited to emergency medicine, but um, that people, um, they just don't follow up, that nobody knows who's in charge. And if I ask a question at a deposition, for example, and I say, well, who is the attending physician in charge of this patient's care? at any particular time and if the answer doesn't come back doctor so and so or the attendings you know or by title or name you know there's going to be trouble because if nobody knows who you know is responsible then nobody's responsible and i guess the, you were uh, practicing mike mike you were practicing during the libby zion uh, yes. case in new york right yeah, yes Did libby zion change behavior in a positive way as far as you're concerned you know, um, there were some obviously some specific changes that were made dealing with residents' um, residents' uh, hours. I mean, I I really can't judge whether that really made a difference or not. I mean, I mean, intuitively, you would say that working less hours has got to you know make you uh, less prone to make mistakes. Um, but I, I I really don't know the answer to that question. But one, if I get back to one thing, I was I was going to say. I think another thing that 
is uh, really important um, in in malpractice cases in general and in emergency medicine emergency medicine as well um, is empowering nurses to speak up and creating an environment at a hospital in which everybody from the janitor on up is not afraid to open their mouth when they see something that doesn't look right um, you know, I remember as an anecdote I remember years ago I was dealing with a critical care specialist that at uh, Texas Children's Hospital, and you know, we were—they were discussing whether something was happened to be meet the technical criteria of apnea or not. And he told me that he taught the residents to say he used the cleaning lady uh, or the janitor test. And that is, if the janitor came in the room and said, "You know what? That little girl just doesn't seem to be breathing right." Well. It didn't matter to him whether or not you know it met the 15-second criteria to be apnea or not. Somebody needs to do something about that. So I think empowering and creating an environment in which nurses are not afraid to speak up, to bring to your attention that they see something wrong or somebody didn't follow up with something, which leads to another thing, too. I, I just recently read, I, I assume you gentlemen are familiar with the checklist manifesto. Actually, we talked about it uh, with some uh uh, intensiveness uh, in the last month or two um, <clears throat> because it is so clear that that uh, in medicine it, as we get more and more complex there's more opportunities to screw up and that we need to kind of be willing to go back and uh, have <clears throat> order sets and the like I think I'm, we're being attacked by the uh, can you hear those airplanes flying over um, in any case the checklist manifesto was uh, reviewed by this guy who is a surgeon from uh, up in Boston. Right. And uh, I mean, along those lines, I had a case not that long ago, a few years ago, in which there actually is an algorithm for the uh, diagnosis of uh, fever of unexplained origin in children under the age of three. And it's jointly published by the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Emer Emergency Medicine. And I mean, that's an algorithm that exists. And it just wasn't even close to being followed as a result of which they missed a very serious case of meningitis. All they had to do was follow this algorithm and not only would they have solved this problem and avoided a, you know, a serious injury, but you know, they would have avoided being sued too. Let me, let me jump in on that for one second because I think the algorithm for taking off a 747 – is a lot of yes and no questions. Did you check the gasoline? Uh, is the uh, are the flaps down? If you look at the algorithm for fever of unknown origin, the first one is: Does the kid look normal? Because normal-looking kids don't get worked up, and so there there are a lot more decisional areas in some of those algorithms than we'd like to believe. You know, it's nice to have a surgical algorithm that says: Did you identify which leg is supposed to be cut off? and sign your name on it. I mean, that's sort of a no-brainer. Um, how far up the leg to cut is a decisional question, and some of them don't lend themselves, I think, to just check boxes. Oh, sure. Well, there's always going to be judgment required. Of course that's the case, and which actually leads to another issue, and which I think many physicians and, mo and many malpractice lawyers don't understand, and that is the defense of um, an error in judgment that we have in New York and, and in various uh, other states, I'm sure they have something similar to it. And most people don't understand what an error in judgment is and what it isn't, and it's misused 
many, many times by both sides. And an error in judgment really is that, you know, if you have one or more acceptable alternatives that a physician cannot be criticized or cannot be held responsible for having made the wrong choice as long as they've made a careful evaluation of the patient, done whatever workup is necessary, and made one or more of two acceptable or two or more acceptable choices. If you've made an acceptable choices after having made a careful evaluation, there is no liability, period. It's not having made the careful evaluation is where that that process falls down. Well, this gets us back to the question of the standard of care is really in our business not one action, but it may be a series of actions which may be appropriate under like or similar circumstances. Sure. And I think you know, like an example would be, you know, not so much in emergency medicine, but, you know, there's an ongoing debate as to whether um, bypass or angioplasty is, is the best way to deal with, uh, um, with, with blocked arteries. And either one of them, you know, there are two schools of thought about it, and either one of them may be acceptable under given circumstances. So I don't think anybody could be criticized for choosing one over the other as long as they've made an evaluation. But, you know, doing something like cutting off somebody's foot for the solution would not be an acceptable alternative. (laughs) And, you know, you have to make the careful evaluation. And I think we're, getting back to what I said, though, where that error in judgment approach is misused is that they leave out the first step, which is making an appropriate evaluation of the patient. Michael, um, I'd like to get back to the uh, idea of using uh, guidelines. Um, I've heard that guidelines are being used in courts to uh, defend physicians, and I also have understood that guidelines are being used to um, attack physician behavior. And one of the problems with guidelines is that there are hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, all kinds of societies are coming out with uh, guidelines. And it's honestly, it's virtually impossible for um, individual physicians to be aware of all of them. So it's a really easy trap to fall into when you say, well, you didn't follow the American Thoracic Society guidelines for the evaluation of uh, pulmonary embolism. And uh, don't you believe that this is a reasonable group of people who put these together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Where do you stand on the use of guidelines in terms of either defending physicians or prosecuting them? Well, I wouldn't use the term prosecuting, but um, the uh, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, not it's, a, crim- it's not a criminal, it's not a criminal act, Rick. It's, yeah, yeah. it's not a criminal act. We're uh, um, you know we're 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 questioning what was done in a particular case. But um, obviously, I like to have things in writing. You know, for example, I'm involved in a case now. It's an obstetric case, and it's the use of a drug, and it's an off-label use of a drug. And the hospital created a protocol in this particular case in 1999. The case happened in 2004. In 1999, that you're supposed to use this off-label use of a drug in a particular setting with caution. And I asked the doctors who, one, who were treating this patient and who happen to be the same ones involved in creating the protocol, well, what does that mean, using caution? And and nobody could tell me what that meant. And then in 2002, they changed the protocol, and I've tried to get the minutes for this thing, and they're very vague. They changed it to going from caution to extreme caution. And I said, well, what does extreme caution mean? I don't know. Well, 
you know, to this is to me that's gold as a plaintiff's attorney, because when you're writing protocols and nobody knows what they mean, including the people who wrote them, how are people supposed to follow them? But in general, I think having protocols are helpful to both sides because it gives some type of a standard by which uh, you know conduct can be measured. That's not to say that in every given situation there aren't deviations, but uh, there, there aren't situations in which you would deviate from that and practicing good medicine at the same time. There's not one size fits all. Uh, and I think everybody recognizes that. But I think as a starting point, they're a good place to start. And the more you can create it as a kind of like a checklist um, would be helpful, I think, to both sides. I think it really standardizes care and recognizing that there are situations where you don't have the luxury of uh, uh, of either time or, you know, the condition of the patient may be different. Um, and, you know, you guys are under the gun. I think everybody understands that. And I think, frankly, um, you know, more than 90% of the time, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt about that. By the way, the uh, does the state would, of New York... I would take a case, frankly, in which, you know, there there is a question about it. I mean, if it's a close call, or even if it's anything close to a close call, I think good people who are experienced in this field, and I can't speak for everybody because there are people who are taking junkie cases. I'll be the first to acknowledge that. But I think people who understand how expensive these cases are to pursue, how difficult they are to pursue, and frankly, we're starting out with a very high, the medical profession and the insurance industry has been very good about, um, about you know, persuading the public in general that there, all these cases are frivolous and there's no legitimate cases and there's never been. I have a friend who's a radiologist who will tell me there's never been a case of malpractice in the history of the world. I've known him for 30 years and it's a subject we just can't discuss. Well, Michael, think, <laughs> Michael the, I, um, the, uh, the, actually the number of malpractice cases has gone down substantially in a, in a variety of states for a variety of reasons. But one of the consequences of that, and I've reported this in the past, is that there are some good people who lawyers won't take up their cases because they involved um, you know, an elderly person who uh, uh, had a problem as a result of surgery. And there was a case where an anesthesiologist's mother had a knee replacement here in California, and uh, several days later, she died of some kind of complications, which were viewed to be uh, the result of negligence, and no attorney would take her case. And then the LA Times talked about a story where um, they followed up on this, where a number of children who had... um, you know, something like a club foot or something like that, and was going to have an operation, a young child, where they had an anesthesia accident. And because the child died, nobody would pick up, pick up these cases. And so there is a kind of a view on the other side that um, people who are being harmed uh, because these cases are, are difficult to take on and they may not represent a lot of dollars, that their justice is being denied in these cases. Well, I think that's clearly true. The um, um, insurance, uh, you know, lobby and the medical lobby in general have been very effective at uh, at persuading the public and and legislatures uh, that these cases should be restricted. As a result of which, um, it, it, it I th- 
there are number. I mean, if you knew the number of people that came through my office in the course of a, a month or a week to have cases I'm turning down, some of them are very meritorious. But as you said, you know, if they're elderly or they're, you know, the damages aren't sufficient. I mean, we have to lay out a great deal of money to pursue these cases, to do them right. And unfortunately, I wish I had the luxury of being able to take cases on sometimes that, you know, just to right a wrong. But um, there's a matter of economics associated with it. And um, I know that uh, the conventional wisdom in the public is that contingent fees uh, – mean that uh, we obviously they mean that we only get paid by being successful or what we can recover but you know the conventional wisdom is we just take these cases and uh, somebody just throws us a bunch of money well I can assure you that that isn't the case and the contingent fee if anything to me is the greatest single factor in weeding out unmeritorious cases because if you know you're not going to get paid and you're going to lay out and I've laid out as much as you know, even in simple cases, they go at least $100,000 in disbursements, and I've gone up to as much as a half a million dollars in disbursements to be able to pursue these cases. I'm just not going to do that if the potential damages are not there. So you're right. They have discouraged uh, people from taking uh, either smaller cases where the recoveries don't warrant it or, secondly, even cases that are very meritorious – um, actually in New York now, and I think in other states as well, we have a, a new statute several years old relating to nursing home cases, which creates um, you know, a different standard for uh, uh, not establishing malpractice, but a different st- standard of compensation for the uh, victim because it was recognized that you know, if you had an 80-year-old 80, you know, 80 person who died of bread sores, which shouldn't occur, um, you know, there would be no reason why anyone would take that case because they just couldn't justify it unless they changed the law about that. Mike, uh, what do you think about the uh, Daubert v. Merrill Dow challenges? And does New York recognize a Daubert challenge to the science being presented? No, in New York we don't recognize Daubert, but um, uh, we do have the Fry standard and you know, frankly I'm not smart enough to figure out the difference because they seem the same to me, but um, you know, I was hoping you were going to explain that to me because well, I, I mean, thought it was just because I was dumb and wasn't an attorney and, and, and couldn't figure that out. But I kind of thought that Fry looked a lot like uh, Daubert. Yeah. Uh, you might want to comment on Daubert well, just for listeners well, who. Well, uh, Fry is that something is generally accepted uh, in, you know, um, among the the uh, community, and Daubert. Uh, although I don't have to deal with it a lot because I'm I'm, I'm dealing with it in New York. Um, in in general, it, it, you have to establish that something is uh, um, peer reviewed. There's a there's a scientific basis for it. I don't have any problems for any of that stuff. I, I think the problem in it's it's harder to translate into medicine than it is in other scientific fields because um, a lot of medicine, of course. You don't have the luxury of being able to do studies. Um, you know, there are things that are unethical. You can't just say, well, you know, what's, how long can we leave somebody uh, without oxygen before, uh, you know, you could do animal studies, but you can't 
you know, you can't just say, okay, we're going to uh, see how far we can go to the edge of the cliff. And that's an analogy I use in malpractice cases all the time is, you know, the idea isn't to see how, it, how close you can get to the edge of the cliff. The idea is to drive down the highway so that, um, you know, and that being the standard of care. So, yeah, you can take chances with certain people, but, you know, if you do, there are going to be consequences to it at some point. At some point, you're going to get the tire over the edge of the cliff, and then there's going to be real problems. Michael, one of the uh, big issues in emergency medicine is uh, documentation. Uh, first of all, I would like to ask, you know, is it naive to ask whether you think um, documentation is important? But the other thing I'd like to bring up, yes. too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, other, the other point is everybody is pushing for electronic medical records. And um, CMS, Medicare, basically recently indicated that they were going to start going after people who, whose documentation was all the same because it's all done through these macros and pushing buttons and there's virtually no narratives in some of these cases and are, they're going to be challenging payments related to it. But I'm wondering whether now that there's all of this computerized documentation, whether uh, it has the opportunity to get us into trouble. Well, actually, uh, it's funny you say that because I was eating breakfast this morning and there was the headline in the uh, Chicago Tribune this morning was an article about uh, um, all these uh, mistakes that are being made with electronic uh, documentation. So, And they cited a number of cases about it. Actually, I bought the paper <laughs> just because so, I, I thought you, it might be handy today. But yes, I think there is a big danger of that. And there's a big danger even in using like checklist forms and things like that, that people check them off and they don't have to think about the process. It is, in a sense, too simple uh, in some ways. And it makes them not think. Uh, you know, how many times have you seen, I've seen it, um, several in my limited experience, uh, where people, even like instrument counts or sponge counts, they just check off the box that it's, uh, instead of having a number on it, the, you know, the number of pads. I mean, I've had a number of cases where people have left, uh, you know, either uh, lap pads in or instruments or things like that and uh, in surgery. But people, let, yet you look at the at the counts the needle count, the sponge count, et cetera. And instead of putting a number in it and counting the number, they just check it's, you know, it's good. So, uh, you know, those things are not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. And you're right. They can create as many problems as they saw. Uh, listen, they, some of these macros are unbelievable, Mike. Uh, you take a look at those and you think that they'd spent two hours in that room doing the greatest examination that ever existed in the history of the world. Is that how long were you with the patient? Oh, seven minutes, right. And, and we're in emergency medicine. There's no way, and it's not even reasonable, nor would you expect them to check all those things, and yet they're on those pieces of paper. Well, you're in the triage business, and, uh, um, you know, that's uh, it, it's inherent. And I think you're right that... These things have the potential of creating as many problems as they solve. It's you, not a uh, substitute for examining the patient. Right. So, so you agree that uh, documentation uh, is uh, kind of important because, you know, the um, our insurance companies hit us over the head with documentation. They think we have unlimited times to write the story of a, it was a cold and windy night kind of thing. Right. And, and yet there is this um, tension about dealing with, you know, 2.6 patients an hour and the idea that ERs are crowded and overcrowded and 
and something's got to give kind of thing. The, um, the next question I'd like to go to is mid-levels. Greg and I have been uh, on a little bit of a crusade recently, I think, to uh, look at uh, mid-levels, you know, the PAs and the nurse practitioners. Uh, we've reviewed a number of cases where um, there's been substantial problems, and they always kind of fall back to supervision of these mid-levels. Uh, have you run into any situations where uh, mid-levels are getting into trouble? Because I can tell you there's more and more emergency departments where you're never seen by a doctor. You're seen by a physician's assistant, and that's it. Yes, I think that I, I had a particular case. I started telling you a little bit about it before. It was the same one involving the algorithm concerning uh, um, a fever of unknown origin in a in a child. In that particular case, in that hospital, they had a uh, process. They had um, what they call a fast track system, which a nurse initially was making a determination as to whether or not you're going into the fast track system mm-hmm. or into the regular emergency system, and the I mean, this child who had meningitis um, and wound up being quadriplegic and blind was sent into the fast track system where despite the fact that his fever was 104 and it was going up, despite the fact that they gave him, um, I, I don't remember if it was ibuprofen or Tylenol, his fever was going up and they monitored him for 10 minutes and without seeing a physician and uh, he was sent home with a junk diagnosis and the junk diagnosis was by a nurse, uh, by a physician's assistant was... Uh, Viral gastroenteritis, and that's another big bugaboo <laughs> of mine. Well, I'm, on what basis was, uh, you know, what did you base that diagnosis on? I mean, with 104 fever going up on Thailand or on some antipyretic, um, that hospital's protocol required that before that child left the hospital, um, need to be seen by a physician, and he wasn't. Um, and, you know, and it gets back to what I was saying earlier about a differential diagnosis. Well, if you're going to come up with a di- diagnosis, you know, and, and put a diagnosis on a piece of paper, there ought to be some basis for it. And if you don't know, you don't know. I understand there are situations where that would be the case. But when you come up with a junk diagnosis that has no basis whatsoever, it misleads the, the patient and, in this case, the patient's parents because they were poor people. Um, and they were saying, well, follow up with your, your family physician and they didn't have a family physician. So, you know, they're not saying – if they had said, you know what, we really don't know what's going on. This could be something serious. Go to your doctor. That would be one thing. But when they say, well, it's just a virus. Don't worry about it. That's quite another. And this all stemmed from the fact of two things, it seems to me, or three things. Number one is this person was put on the so-called fast-track system, which automatically um, got him out of the – situation where there would be the normal testing and the normal evaluation by a physician. Number two, he was never seen by a physician. And um, third, they didn't follow the algorithm of somebody that that all it would have required is either drawing blood to comply with the standard of care to either draw blood or to empirically treat with antibiotics. And none of that was done, the result of which uh, the child comes back two days later um, in throes of a seizure, and I mean, there's some problems then too. Uh, but you know, as a result, he's quadriplegic and blind. This is something that should have been caught. By the way, Mike, uh, you realize that a child at a temperature of 102 is not necessarily sicker than a child at 104. I understand that that, 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 that is actually uh, not current science. But, right, but there I was, an al- there was, but there was, there was evidence-based medicine. 
established by both the American College of Emergency Medicine and the American Academy of Pediatrics that where you have a fever of unknown origin that they made they really looked at and again I don't want to debate the merits of this particular case but they really looked at at what level a fever would justify how many cases of meningitis are you going to miss or how many cases of sepsis are you going to miss given a a fever of a given uh, of a given level and they looked at those studies and they looked at you know okay this may have been a number of years ago that may have changed I haven't looked at it in a while but um, they looked at how many cases are we going to miss and it was roughly as I recall something like 9% of cases of uh, 9% of cases were going to be missed uh, of either sepsis or meningitis if they didn't use that as a threshold I mean there were other factors involved in the algorithm unquestionably but Nobody did anything for this child. They gave him some ibuprofen, and despite the ibuprofen, his temperature start, kept going up. And then they just sent him home without a physician ever seeing him even. Well, that's even a terrific case. He looked sick. I think it's a terrific case, Michael, because there's lots of lessons to be learned there. And I can tell you the trend in emergency medicine is to have these fast tracks and to have the minor cases not integrated with the serious cases so that they can be expedited through the department and um, this is a direction which I think is kind of dangerous because you're exactly right. A nurse is the one who makes that critical decision and as soon as you put down the fast track path, the assumption is there's nothing of anything consequence wrong with you and it's just uh, we can let a mid-level take over and uh, I'm frankly very concerned about that. And I think you should be because in that case, as I'm, I'm thinking about it more, they were describing the child in the uh, emergency room as lethargic, which is a magic word, as you know, yes, it is. And, yes, yes. and sleepy. Yes. And that person, that child doesn't see a physician. I mean, the first thing you told me earlier was, you know, the first thing on the algorithm was, does he look sick? Well, right. if, if, nobody exactly. looks, if nobody looks and whoever is looking is using the magic words, well, somebody's got to look. <laughs> In yeah, that case, was the case. actual word was the actual word lethargic on yep. the chart? Oh my yeah. god! Oh my lethargic. god! Is, we call it the L word. I understand. <laughs> well, that's not a word that's used by accident. I mean, no, somebody no. is a trained observer. They know what that word means. And when yeah, we actually in that, our in our business, that means spinal tap. Right, and and as you know, I mean, that gets back to an important point about. Uh, you know, using the diagnostic process, you know as well as I, and I don't know how current this literature is, but I've had a number of meningitis cases over the years. Um, and, um, you know, if you're not doing something like 85% normal spinal taps, your threshold for doing spinal taps isn't right. And if you're not yeah. taking out a very high percentage of normal appendixes, your threshold for appendicitis isn't right. And that's well documented in the literature. Everybody knows it. And yet, I mean, how I've seen... Well, I've probably dealt with eight or nine cases of meningitis over the years, including four cases of tuberculous meningitis, wow. um, which were missed. They're all, they all have the same exact theme, exact same thing. I, don't, I just didn't think that you know, the kid could have meningitis, and they don't go through the diagnostic process. Um, and nobody goes to the emergency room because they think their kid has a cold. They're concerned. They, parents see something that you know somebody looking at this child for the first time may never see, and that is they know there's something different about this illness than um, than what they've seen in the past, and that's why they're there to get specialized care. One of the things I wanted to get get into a little bit is um, what you look for in an, in an expert. 
um, because these we see these cases and um, it becomes the battle of the experts kind of thing. And you're looking for somebody who's uh, good looking or articulate, um, got some credentials behind their name. But we but ultimately they're each side's experts are saying the opposite of which uh, of the other. Um, can you tell us what you shoot for? Well, what I'm looking for is really two things. Number one is somebody with absolutely impeccable credentials. I mean, the, it's it's no more expensive to get the person with the best credentials on the planet than it is to get somebody who you know is just your average uh, run-of-the-mill workaday doctor. That's not to say that a workaday doctor can't you know doesn't know these things, but I want somebody who, when you know they come into court, that nobody can question this person's credentials. Um, and secondly, that they are, they can explain things in simple terms, that they're a teacher, that they can explain what's going on and, and not make it complicated. Uh, so those are basically the, the, the two things. And unfortunately, I think a lot of these trials do turn on um, who, which expert is the most glib as opposed to, uh, um, you know, who's basically, frankly, <laughs> I mean, I think I'm probably unusual in this regard, but the cases I have, I would rather have them tried in front of a panel of doctors than have them tried in front of a panel of jurors yeah. because the only way I can lose these cases that I have, frankly, um, is if somebody doesn't understand what this was really all about. Yeah, and I think the defendants many times in my cases certainly um, you know, try to uh, give you a, a – a, Try to obscure what the real issue is and try to make things much more complicated than they really are because, as I told you, my threshold is if some expert isn't telling me they couldn't possibly have done that, then you must have missed something. Um, you know, so in reality, in my experience, certainly over more recently, um, when more of these cases have been settled, up until about four or five, three or four years ago, I, never, I hadn't had a case in 15 years that didn't go at least three weeks of trial. But more recently, people are recognizing that you know, when you have high-quality experts that really are leaders in their field and these people are not, you know, going to come in and just make something up, um, that, you know, these cases tend to settle. Here's a question for you that uh, is kind of um, uh, maybe a, something you don't too feel too comfortable with. But when you um, – do you see any red flags in the behavior of the defendants – that kind of um, things that they ought not do when they're in front of the jury or in their in the courtroom. Well, I don't know about red flags. I think you can't come across too arrogantly. You can't come across arrogantly, and I think you have to, you know, act like you care. And I and I'm mm-hmm. sure that that you know, and and I don't mean that in any pejorative way because I know that in certainly in general, doctors do care. They don't want to make mistakes. They don't, you know, they they don't like it when they're. Um, when their care is being criticized, um, and it's hard. I mean, I, you know, nobody likes to be criticized, but um, I think you, you can't come across. You know, some people come across as as jerks, and uh, I think you just have to avoid that. I mean, there, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of arrogance with good reason to be, um, you know, to do what you guys do. You can't you can't do what you don't do what you do without a great deal of self confidence that can border on arrogance, and I think you have to avoid that coming across. One time I had a critical care specialist who had never testified before, and um, I realized it's kind of the same thing with emergency medicine. But he was on the stand, and I was asking him questions. He had never testified, and I thought he was finished with an answer, 
and he said, uh, he said, wait a second, I'm not finished. <laughs> he went on to explain another 10 reasons why what he was saying was correct. And I realized after the fact, particularly in, in, in intensive care and in probably in emergency medicine too, is you can't, you know, you don't, you don't have the luxury in your profession of, of not making a decision and making it uh, when I was in the Army and when I went to officer candidate school, they said the worst thing you could do is do nothing and you have to make a decision and you know just don't stand there, do something. And I think that goes with your profession certainly uh, a lot. So, you know, but I think that can tend to border on arrogance at some times. And I respect that, that level of, um, of confidence and self-confidence that you have to make a decision and, 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 uh, and uh, proceed in a manner when sometimes you're really not sure about what the right thing to do is. But I think that can tend to come across as arrogance sometime. Um, and I think you just have to guard against that. Mike, I, we, we've occupied a lot of your time, but I, wa- I want to ask you this question seriously. If you had a child who was 26 years of age, who was graduated from medical school today and going into the practice of medicine, give me three or four things you'd tell him so he never got to see you in court. Well, I think you have to apply the lessons that you learned. And you, I'm, I don't know. I've never been to medical school, obviously. But, you know, I would suspect that from day one, you learn about what a differential diagnosis is and how to deal with it. And that's rule number one. And number two is to, you know, obviously you have to uh, um, to listen to people because, you know, the nurses can help you out, particularly when you're inexperienced and you're, you're just learning it. And, and even if you're the most experienced doctors in the world, I know, you know, people on my office staff, they catch me making mistakes all the time. And I think you have to create an environment in which you're willing to respect somebody, you know, uh, alerting you to the fact that there may be a problem. And I think you have to be meticulous about following up on, on um, you know, making sure things are ordered, making sure you're um, you're evaluating all the information that's possible, which isn't always easy in the, when you're under the gun and you have a bunch of patients you have to deal with, and you know you really just uh, you know people go into medicine because they want to help people, and you know they unfortunately they get distracted by you know pressures of having to see too many patients or do too many things, but you can't lose sight of that patient, and I think unfortunately they're that happens. It happens more than it should. Michael, do you ever use the fact that the emergency department was very busy or super busy as an um, attack on the physician's behavior? Well, I think not in and of itself, but I th- obviously it is a factor, and that's a factor that can lead to mistakes. And um, you know, I think sometimes we do look at what the patient census is, but you know, I don't know that that really gets you very far because the def- you know the defense would come up at that point and say, well, look, you know, what do you want us to do? We only have so many hands, we only have so many things that we can do. I don't think that solves you solves the problem of you know a a, a deviation from accepted care, you know. But obviously. Uh, you know, you're only one person or you're only however many people there are and there are so many patients and you just get spread thinner. And obviously it's a triage process where you have to take care of the most seriously ill first. But that doesn't excuse, for example, on things that you do have time for, um, you know, like nobody um, – I had a case years ago where um, 
they ordered this man came in with what ultimately turned out to be necrotizing fasciitis, but um, they didn't know that at the time. But in any event, they ordered antibiotics in the emergency room. And at that particular hospital, if you ordered antibiotics twice a day, they gave it at 9.30, at 9 o'clock in the morning, at 9 o'clock at night. Well, this patient, they ordered in the emergency room, let's say at, um, you know, at 8.58. And by the time he got to his room, he was discharged from the emergency room into the, hospital, into the room. And, uh, um, you know, they held the antibiotics till 12 o'clock at night, I mean, till 9 o'clock at night. So, you know, that's just... That's just sloppy. And some, so, I mean, did you have to write stat for the order or, or give antibiotics now? And we've had situations, for example, where, you know, somebody came back with a uh, – I'll just give you another example, which is important, um, that people get imaging studies in the uh, emergency department and, you know, then the patient's discharged and they never communicate this to the uh, – to the uh, – to the patient's physician. We had a case a few years ago where something came back, you know, essentially showing uh, liver cancer, and the results never got um, um, transmitted to the uh, patient's physician. And it was 31 months before anyone found out that they had done this test 31 months earlier, wow. showing that he had liver cancer. That's well, a, that's I mean, just a slam dunk. That's a slam well, dunk. I, under, I understand <laughs> it is, but you know that doesn't help the patient. So these no. are kind of things that can. You know, some, and I have a case now going on now where, you know, somebody came back and they did a spinal tap. Um, the gram stain was negative. They, uh, um, but they did a culture. And the next day the culture came back, what they described as slightly positive, with slight growth. Well, kind of like being a little slightly pregnant, I yes. guess. But, um, right, but right. They, never, they never called the patient <laughs> to tell them about it. Oh. So, I mean, these things are, as I said, you know. My standard is if somebody's not telling me that, that can't possibly happen, well, believe me, that's happening every day. Guys, I think that uh, we've, we've um, taken a lot of um, Michael's time. I do appreciate it. Um, is, is there anything we want to say in closing here? Uh, Greg, do you have anything to say, Michael? Well, I, I would add one thing because I know it was one of the questions that you had sent me in advance, and that is uh, we talked a little bit about it, about, and I'll, maybe I can get on a soapbox for a minute, but, you know, these malpractice uh, reforms that are going on are so-called reforms. Right. And I think what people have to understand, doctors and lawyers alike, is that these so-called reforms are restricting people's access to um, these types of uh, uh, is to litigation process if necessary is by definition they only affect meritorious cases they do not rule out frivolous cases if you put caps on recoveries for example they only apply to situations where people would be entitled to uh, more than what the cap was and they've already proven negligence and they've already proven causation and when you restrict the access to this thing I think frankly that Malpractice cases, they are a great tool for teaching people how to avoid things in the future. And hopefully what you're doing here in this type of process, hopefully I've contributed to it a little bit. But, you know, as I said at the outset, I would be very happy if there was never another malpractice case in the history of the world. Well, listen, you, uh, you have reiterated over the last hour about everything I teach in the two-day course on uh, uh, risk management and uh, in uh, dealing with the patients. Um, but we do thank you for your time and effort here. There will be um, probably a couple of thousand physicians who listen and pick up on this. And uh, Rick and I would like to personally thank you for uh, taking this time 
to uh, help educate the medical profession. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, and I hope that I can contribute to uh, reducing these kind of claims, frankly. Well, thanks again to Michael Kessler, our first plaintiff attorney in four years who was willing to talk to us. Um, I thought that was um, pretty enlightening stuff, and um, I wanted to thank him again. Um, Greg, let's get into... Uh, a letter. I've got a letter here from um, David Esther, which is very similar to Mr. Mike Kessler, but David Esther, he asks a question, should there not be different medical legal standards of care applying to the doctors by the level of their training? He specifically says board certified resident trained in emergency medicine, board certified but not trained in emergency medicine, a full-time emergency physician with neither boards nor residency training, and these part-time emergency physicians who often wind up covering in smaller community hospitals that that are generally family physicians or general practitioners. And um, what do you think, uh, Greg, about uh, should their level of uh, standard of care vary by the doctor's training. Well, it, Rick, uh, it doesn't even matter what I think. It's what the various states and the courts think. And in a lot of states, you need to have the exact same type of expert as the doctor who is uh, being sued. Here in the state of Michigan, if it's a non-board-certified uh, emergency physician, let's say they're family practice trained, and a lot of these small towns, you have family practitioners, practitioners who still take time in the emergency department. Um, it's best for the for both sides to have somebody with about that same level of training and experience to either say what is or was uh, was not the standard of care at that moment in time. So it's not that there's one standard in the department. There's certainly a different standard in uh, rural areas where this is what's available at that moment in time. Now, if you're in downtown Chicago, pretty much that standard is going to be that of a uh, board-certified emergency physician. Um, what's, what's never talked about, and I think is going to be a much bigger issue, is what should be the standards of training and care applied against mid-levels? And uh, believe me, uh, PAs are PAs, physician assistants, and they function under the doctor's license. Nurse practitioners, depending on the state that you're in, have an independent license to practice. And what should their, what should their training be, their experience be, to work in an emergency department? And that has not been defined or worked out at this point in time. Right. I think uh, you and I have kind of gotten a little bug up our butts recently regarding yes. <laughs> regarding this issue, and we are very much in sync. I am concerned because the fact is that although I really very much valued the nurse practitioners and uh, PAs we had, I see this issue in that they have no special training. Everything is on the job, and I've, I view that as, frankly, problematic. I do see, however, that the um, PAs are now able to get a certificate in spe- with, you know, I think it's an acknowledgement of special competency or something like that in emergency medicine, but it requires that you have, you know, several years of practice um, that they, you submit your some of your cases for review and you th- have so much CME that focuses on emergency medicine and finally you wind up taking an exam to get this. But I honestly think it's quite difficult to do it 
and, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of motivation on the part of PAs because I don't think it's going to change their salary one whit, and it's a fair amount of work. So I, um, I'm not so sure that it's going to do what I think it's intended to do. Well, you know, why is it a surprise to anybody that we take somebody out of medical school and then we give them three or four years training in a residency in that field so we think they're competent to go out and see patients? Uh, why would you think that somebody who's last week finished the PA program is now ready to see patients with minimal supervision in an apartment. It doesn't make any sense to me, and I think the smart groups would have a program in some way of bringing these people along because, you know, someday I'm going to be a patient. I want to make sure somebody's taking care of me who kind of done this before. I think that, you know, you don't have somebody land a 747 who hasn't sat in the other seat uh, and been the assistant, the uh, first officer on this deal for about 10 years before um, he's called a captain on one of these ships. Yeah, I, I understand and, and I agree. And emergency physicians, are it's so tempting to say, well, we're supervising them, when in fact the level of supervision, as you and I have seen, is extraordinarily variable, extraordinarily variable. Yep. Variable isn't even the word. And as I remember, and I hate to say that the government does anything correctly, but when uh, I was president of the college and they introduced that thing that uh, a physician had to see every case of the resident, that was not a bad thing. Because you and I all remember the days when they'd stack up the charts, the attending is sleeping, and he'd sign, you know, 50 charts at the end of the shift. That wasn't teaching, uh, and I and I think that uh, we've we've come along this far for um, uh, doctors. We sure as hell can do the same things for physician assistants. Yeah, now the uh, now we're just signing PA charts. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and the funny thing is, uh, all those uh, academics who had their head up their butt about oh, we can't have primary care people or people who are interns or something that's seeing patients in the emergency department don't seem to mind. In fact, one of the recent studies you've got in the EMA database says there are now 27% of people in, in even in academic emergency departments who are being seen by mid-levels. Right. That was the study by Mike Menchin. And even that study is problematic in that it only went up to 2006. And I think that this uh, transition to mid-levels is kind of getting logarithmic so that's five years old when it was published which means the data was even older than that and um so i think it's time for mike to do a, a, a an updated survey well the reason we need an updated survey rick is if you're going to do any workforce projections in emergency medicine you can't just take the number of residents we're graduating which by the way is at an all-time high if you combine that with an all-time high of people other than physicians seeing patients in emergency departments, I, I think this workforce shortage we talk about may be a myth. And uh, we need to look at this very carefully because the worst thing we could do would be to overproduce and then uh, drive down the desirability of our own graduates. You know, one of the things I must tell you in confidence, don't tell anybody about this, Greg, is okay. that um, I have a certain reluctance to talk about this issue that you and I have been talking about with regards to the 
training of PAs and NPs specifically regarding emergency medicine. And um, because I think, honestly, a lot of our colleagues, they have, you know, they drank the Kool-Aid here and they want these PAs and NPs to see, you know, all of these quote-unquote minor cases in the fast track kind of thing without being supervised. And I really admire uh, these groups where they've taken the position a doctor is going to see every patient, uh, even though seen by a mid-level. I know that is, that is not popular. I know it makes me not popular to say it. And I think probably you might agree, Greg. So come on and hold my hand here, will you? Well, I'll hold your hand and understand this, Rick. You've been unpopular for a lot of other <laughs> reasons than this, number one. Number two, I've been hated by classier groups than our listenership. So, I mean, it, it happens all the time, but you've got to kind of stand up here and say, if you really think that there's some benefit to having a physician involved, then there ought to be certain cases the physician has to see. And uh, it is variable place to place. And I'm telling you, there's no standard. I'm hoping this year that the council at ASEP starts to debate this issue and, and decide what what supervision really means because at this point in time it's it's kind of a free-for-all actually i can't envision that happening this is too much of an economic hot potato for um the council to be beating its chest about um you know actually i think you know it was really interesting that mike kessler brought up the case of a missed meningitis case that was referred you know you could just see this thing happening you know that the triage nurse says ah it's just a febrile baby send it down to the fast track just because it's in the fact track it is implied that this is not a serious problem and uh, you know then they see a pa they miss the um, meningitis kind of thing and ah jesus it's it's so freaking predictable oh oh god it's unbelievable Okay, listen, I'm watching the clock here. We um, we need your wine of the month, if you would. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> there are great bargains out there, and, and this, is not, this is not Greg and Rick and, and uh, Mel and everybody saying, the, these are the big guys uh, in the wine advocate, and there's one called La Crema. Oh, geez. Uh, th- That's my wife's no, no. favorite. Yeah, La, La Crema, uh, 2009 Chardonnay, Monterey, California. This is a 91, 92 level bottle. I mean, there are hundred dollar bottles that don't get 91s and 92s. This is 20 bucks a bottle. Actually, at Costco, it's 14, and um, I just bought a case of it for because of. Uh some special, uh, I forget what it was, uh, birthday or something, my wife or something like that. That's, it is her favorite. Oh, well, this this stuff is just getting rave reviews across the board. For anybody who can't get it in your area, telephone number 800-314-1762, and they'll arrange to ship it to you. But I'll tell you, this stuff is dynamite, and... Um, Having having been wasted on it several times, I can uh, I can attest that if you're going to put up, you know, four, you say fourteen bucks a bottle. Mm-hmm. Yes, to, sir. To I get just a, a case to to get one that Parker says is a ninety one ninety two. I don't think you can beat that. This America, 
What a country. What a wonderful place. What a wonderful place. All right, Greg, I'll talk with you next month. Signing off, July 2011, Risk Management Monthly. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.